The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is my good friend George Schroeder from USA Today. George is the national college football writer and an all-around wonderful guy. We'll talk to a watch. And I'm warning you folks, we're going to dig into some hypotheticals while looking into our cloudy crystal balls. If Tua's injury impacts the outcome of the LSU game, what does that mean to the college football playoff selection process? What could it mean maybe to the Heisman race? We'll get into a bunch of that with George. We'll also talk about what it means for a team to struggle because a bunch of my Twitter followers got ticked at me because I took a little issue with saying Alabama struggled to beat Tennessee. Also, USA Today's coaches' salary database is out. It is the standard in the business. It is great work done by George's colleagues. George and I will sift through the staggering numbers and try to come up with what it all means and why college football's coaching salary market seems to be broken. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe. And if so inclined, give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast is my good friend George Schroeder from USA Today, the terrific national college football writer. Thanks a lot, George. It's been at least a little while. You're a reoccurring guest, but it's been a little while since we've had a chance to chat. And we I don't think we've run into each other this season, too. Our our travel schedules have been a little disparate, and uh, so looking forward to that as well. Season going okay so far. I guess let's start with the news. And the big news was uh, we're on Tua Watch, right? And it's sort of hard to figure out where this all goes. So I'm going to ask you to speculate a little bit with me. There is a lot of possible complications that come with Tua being hurt that are beyond just what it means to Alabama. Let's get into some of those and how Tua being hurt could complicate things for all of college football in the next couple of months. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, first of all, obviously – He's not going to play Saturday against Arkansas. I don't think any of us is, is all that concerned about that. I don't think we see an Illinois-Wisconsin situation occurring. So I don't believe that's an issue. Then they have an off week uh, or, or an idle Saturday, whatever we want to call it. And <laughs> Thank then, you. of course, is the, the big game, uh, November 9th, uh, against LSU and Tuscaloosa, which is what you're talking about, what mm-hmm. we're all sort of talking about. So – we're all fast-forwarding to that. And inside the halls at Alabama, I guarantee you there's some fast-forwarding to that, too, even though nobody wants to admit it. So the question is, will he be back? And, and if he is, and I think he will be, what, what kind of percent of, of the you know, tool we know will he be by November 9th and, or by time to prepare for that, really? Because you need to be you know, practicing at a high level, too, right, going into the game. And I don't think we know. And so – 
I, I, what you're talking about is interesting is let's say LSU wins. Does Alabama get a mulligan from the uh, college football playoff selection committee because Tua either does not play or is limited in some way? And by the way, if he plays, I'm not sure how you how you sort of start to talk about the extent of the injury if you're a selection committee member. That's a little bit different probably than missing a game. Right. My suspicion uh, is that you don't or you probably shouldn't. But I cede the floor back to you. But let's say he's out and Mac Jones is in and that LSU offense um, overpowers Alabama and Alabama's powerful offense can't get it cranked up because they don't have Tua. And by the way, side note, um, it was a little odd against Tennessee the other night realizing, oh, this is where Jalen Hurts would go in and run the show, but he's not there anymore, right? Mm-hmm. But So Mac Jones is a capable quarterback, but he's clearly not Tua Tungavailoa. Um, so if they were to lose that game with Mac Jones at the helm, then does the selection committee sort of consider that? I, I think they do. But I also think this, I mean, we can talk all we want about uh, whether or not the SEC will get two teams in, and it's very possible they have two of the, the four best teams. But best is going to still be defined by uh, conference champions in a lot of ways. And so, to me, some of the SEC fever dreams uh, are going to be just that. It, it, it's You are going to have to have some help from all over the rest of college football in order to get those sec- that second SEC team in. But this is a way that it would make sense because you could say, that Alabama team maybe doesn't lose without Tua, and they're 11 and one, and didn't win the SEC West in this scenario. LSU did, and then went on and won the SEC, and it's 13 and 0. How do we leave that Alabama team out when we don't even know what they were like at full strength? So I get that. I just keep thinking to myself, if the if the other teams around college football do their jobs and win, then it will be a, a shame, but it'll be the way it works. There's only four slots. I know, I know that's an unpopular opinion. I just look at how the selection committee works. Yeah, I'm not thrilled with the prospect of it either. Well, for a couple of reasons. A, why would you not want Tua to play? I mean, like, you know, of course, we, right. all, no, want, we all want to see exactly. Tua playing and being healthy and that LSU-Alabama game do what it could possibly do, which could end up being a great, great game and a lot of fun. And it could decide a playoff team and a Heisman and, and all kinds of cool stuff. And if two is not there, that's a major disappointment. Uh, but I do um, like you're right. The complications of, especially if Alabama were to play well, right? If they were to play pretty well without Tua, right? You know they are going to be at home. Uh, Alabama, by the way, has a lot of really good players. If you know, newsflash, uh, I could certainly see a, a situation where they do quite well, uh, even without one of the five best players in the country, certainly one of the two or three best quarterbacks. So there's that element of it. Let me ask you something about the... Well, well, can I interject yeah, one thing? Sure, sure. What if Alabama plays without Tua and wins? Yeah, well, that would... And I don't know that I would say that would happen based on what we've seen of both teams so far. Yeah. But we haven't seen LSU win a game against Alabama since, what, 2011, right? Yeah. So until we see it, maybe we ought to wait. But if that were to happen... What does that do to the scenario? To me, I, oh, it blows I it up. I think that I think you're done if you're if you're LSU and you lose right. to Alabama mm-hmm. without Tua. Then we're not even we're not talking about you right. anymore. 
I don't know that that's going to happen, obviously. And I think Tua is going to play. Uh, you know, I think more than likely he's going to play, and, and, and I hope he's completely healthy because I do want that fantastic showdown that I assume you and I might both be at. Yeah, and also, well, first of all, be a fun game, be a great setting, all those things. And and I don't really want to have to see this messy stuff. You know, the one thing about the the injuries and the playoff committee, and you and I have talked about this before, is there's really no rhyme or reason to it. And I think it's one of those things that they sort of have to acknowledge, but the reality is mostly they're just hoping to avoid that conversation because it's it's really hard to insert the so-and-so was hurt, what does this mean to the playoff selections, especially in football. It's one thing in basketball where there are only five players and one starter could have a huge impact. It, it's so obvious to see. But we talk about this with you know Tua and quarterbacks, and it came up when – JT Barrett got hurt and Ohio State won the Big Ten with Cardell Jones, ostensibly their third stringer. And that was sort of an easier conversation to have. But there are injuries in football all the damn time, right? I mean, like if we really wanted to dive in on this, you know, who else might be injured in a big game that a coach could say, hey, listen, this this really swung things one way or the other. So the, the injury piece, and we will consider injuries part of the college football player selection process, is just a canard. It's just it's just it's it's just a mess from the start, and it's really yeah. something that they don't know how to handle, and they probably are just mostly hoping that they don't have to, to have the conversation. I thought it was a problematic to insert it in there and give it sort of the same level of consideration by, by you know, some of these other potential or criteria that they're supposed to, to work on. And, but we saw it in the very first year. Um, you're right. I mean, there was, what do you do with uh, JT Barrett? How about this one? That first year, Oregon lost to Arizona. I believe it was at home, and it was a horrendous loss in the regular season. But they were without a couple of really important offensive linemen. Yeah, I remember that. That's a good call. That's a good call. Yeah, I remember that. Yep. Now, Oregon also came back and beat Arizona again. So they kind of got to, I don't know if you erase it, but semi-erase the loss in the Pac-12 title game. But but the committee cited that as they made some of, you know, and who knows what the chairman means when he says whatever. But. (laughs) They retro they retrofit that. those explanations anyway more often than not. You know, Absolutely. you've said that a few it's times. To, the idea that they rank the teams and then they come up with reasonings behind where how they ranked them. That's right, and and it's and I'm sure it's also difficult too to sort of really give a even if you wanted to give kind of the complete accurate sense of what what the room thought about why you rank these guys. It's hard to do that because it's twelve or thirteen members depending on the year yeah. with all different reasons for how that team got ranked that way. So. To me, uh, to, to, to go bigger picture, I think the uh, selection committee chairman's job as spokesman is uh, almost impossible, especially on those, um, the, you know, the in-season rankings. Let, let me throw one other thing. And again, I, I warned the listeners about this in the opening. We were going to be doing <laughs> going down speculation and, and hypothetical highway here. So if that's not your thing, sorry. But it, I think it's fun in this conversation. Let me talk about the Heisman and Tua. There are so many really, really good quarterbacks right now having really fantastic seasons. Let's just say he he simply misses the Arkansas game. 
and he plays against LSU. Who knows what capacity he plays in, but he plays against LSU. And I'm just going to say he plays he plays well. Does the idea of him simply missing a game matter? Because whoever wins this Heisman, it's usually the case. But it seems like we're on the way to really splitting hairs between Burrow and Fields and Hertz and Tua. And I'm just wondering if one missed game against a pretty you know bad opponent is something that could swing things towards somebody else. Just because the you know you, you're removing a, what a half's worth of numbers because you probably only end up playing a half and throwing four or five touchdowns, uh, you know again that might be very nitpicky, but I also see a, a scenario where this Heisman vote could be very close. And does one miss game swing things, or is that problematic for Tua's candidacy? It's so hard with the Heisman because I'm sitting here thinking about it, and and uh, I vote for the Heisman and. Um, you know, but but I'm one of whatever it is, 800 plus, right? Yeah, 900 or so. With the, when you yeah. consider the, uh, so, the former winners, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not sure that I look at stats very much at all. I mean, I have a in terms of the Heisman vote. So you know, if one guy has 42 touchdown passes or is accounted for 51 or whatever it is, and the other guy has 47 but he missed a half, I'm not necessarily going to know that and maybe maybe i should i just don't think it should be completely stat driven Mm -hmm. i am interested sort of in the passing efficiency i am interested in sort of their uh completion percentage uh so so maybe i'm the atypical heisen voter i don't know Mm -hmm. but i think missing a game against arkansas where what's he going to play anyway i mean uh two and a half quarters maybe uh i i don't know that that matters a ton to me um how he plays when he comes back against LSU when they go head-to-head, which is another reason why I wanted to be fully healthy. But how he plays head-to-head sort of against Joe Burrow might go a long, long way towards determining this award. Obviously, they got to keep winning, and those kinds of things matter, right, and, and how they perform down the stretch in other games because Burrow's got Auburn, obviously, um, this week, and, and then you know, Alabama's got to go to Auburn. And so you're going to have some other sort of marks to look at, but, and and that's before we ever talk about Justin Fields. I'm glad you mentioned him because he sort of needs to be coming up along the outside, I think on, in this sort of fictional Heisman race or hypothetical Heisman race. Uh, And then Hertz is sitting out there putting up big time numbers too. And um, I don't know, but I don't think missing the Arkansas game is a big deal. I think a bigger deal is, is he healthy and ready to go? And how does he play? against LSU. Yeah, that's fair. Again, in, in my mind, again, I was just, you know, listening, sort of thinking of like it, the accumulation of stats. And if you lose one game's worth of accumulation, doesn't necessarily ding you when the race is really close. I, I don't want to do a massive preview of this weekend, but you mentioned LSU Auburn. My quick sense of that game is, you know, Auburn is kind of one dimensional on offense. And I don't know if you can be that and, and, beat an LSU or some of these teams with the really powerful offenses. So I don't expect that to go particularly well for Auburn this weekend. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. I think you're probably right. The only thing that gives me pause about this game is what gives me pause about LSU, which is we have seen two two nice wins uh, against Texas and against Florida, in which they turned two offenses that are have not been juggernauts into juggernauts. It's a little bit like what we we've been seeing through the years from Oklahoma, although clearly not 
that kind of bad defense that we saw in years past. But where, um, and, and you kind of wonder, does that coincide with the change to the powerful offense? But my point is, LSU's defense is not nearly as good as, it, as the LSU standard is or has been. That's the only thing that gives me pause about LSU, period, because the offense is for real and it's spectacular and it's <laughs> terrific. And just, I love everything about it. it it's in, you know, and I've gotten past just the, the being flabbergasted by it, right? Just, I, I love the offense. I love how powerful it is. That said, you're right about Auburn's, uh, you're right about Auburn's offense. It's, you know, Bo Nix has sort of had some, um, hit some speed bumps as a true freshman. I think he's going to be terrific. He makes some terrific plays and then he makes some bad plays. And, then the run game, I think, I'm not sure we understand just what a big deal it was to lose to Jatarvius Whitlow in the run game for Auburn. That really hurts. So I think it's hard. The only thing that I'm, re- the other thing that I'm really interested in is this. I think Auburn's defense is the best in the country. I think it's terrific. Derek Brown is a disruptor on the, on the front. And it will be very interesting to see because LSU has not faced anything like that. Florida's defense is a good defense. Auburn's maybe is a great defense potentially. Now, does that, I, I am not a fan of the idea that a great defense goes up against a great offense in today's world because I think eventually if you don't have an offense, your great defense snaps. But I think it'll be very interesting to see if they can slow uh, LSU down significantly, which nobody's done. So last weekend, I wanted to get into a conversation that I will carry over from my uh, Twitter mentions because I, I got roasted a little bit because somebody suggested that Alabama struggled this past weekend. And my tweet was something like struggle with a question mark. I mean, you know, I watched probably more of that Alabama game than I've had any, almost any other Alabama game this year because it actually was pretty competitive, right? They went to the second half and and were worthy of being watched. And Tua was hurt, so that was a big deal. So I certainly had my eyes on it for that reason as well. But ultimately, Alabama won the game by 22 points, never trailed, never was within one score in the second half, never did Tennessee have the ball within range of taking the lead in the second half. So like to me, like, you know, definitely not Alabama standard, definitely not as impressive as I would have thought against a Tennessee team that is not particularly good. But like struggle was an odd word for me to sort of wrap my head around like that Alabama struggled in that game. They struggled maybe without Tua, but I didn't have I have a hard time defining struggle. And that goes to Clemson like right like Trevor Lawrence has thrown eight interceptions and does that mean Clemson has struggled because Clemson had one close game but otherwise has pretty much been doing its Clemson thing which is kicking the hell out of everybody like Clemson hasn't hasn't struggled in in my book here so I guess I'm wondering in this day and age where we're so hyper focused on the top teams and really when the top teams have played so well the, the the level of performance we expect out of these elite teams because they generally hit it from week to week is very very high like what what does struggle mean to you like i, I don't know like are, are we defining struggle are we setting the bar too high if struggling is 22 point win against tennessee yes i think we are um and, and frankly if it's uh, uh whatever point when it was against louisville for Clemson, and I do think this. I do think it that it 
there's been some interesting things pointed out by some of our colleagues uh, from, from other outlets on Twitter this week about sort of the different way that we regard things uh, when it comes to two different teams. And it always seems to be Alabama versus Clemson in terms of the compare and contrast because they've been the undisputed best programs. I'm not sure they are this year, but that's another discussion. Um, I think some others have come alongside them. But uh, So Clemson had the the only real struggle, and that struggle was real, where they could have, would have, and almost should have gotten beaten by North Carolina, right? Mm-hmm. So they didn't, though. They won that game. But that was a real struggle. I'm not sure the rest of their season has been a, has been much of a struggle, period. Is, is Trevor Lawrence playing as well as he did uh, in the, you know, the latter third of last season and in the postseason? No, he's not. So he hasn't taken – um, the, the leap you thought he might take, and he may have regressed a little bit, and yet they're still blowing people's doors off, which you kind of alluded to. But it's like we're sort of attributing every interception uh, or every time they're not up by three touchdowns by the end of the first quarter, and we're kind of conflating that with the North Carolina struggle. So to me, I think we are over analyzing Clemson all the time. And by the way, that does not mean that Clemson should be in, the, in everybody's top four. It may well be that you should have Ohio State and LSU and maybe even Oklahoma in there ahead of them. I don't know. But my point is there's a lot of there's, – there's five or six teams that ought to be in everybody's mind, and we can all come up with different reasons why they, these four are in there. But I, I just – I think we've seen them struggle one time. And we've also seen Clemson do that through the years about once a year, and sometimes they lose, and a lot of times they win that game, and then they go on to be really good. So I don't know why we're all fired up about the idea that Clemson can't play football anymore. I I think they really can. (laughs) How about this, Ralph? What did we think was going to be an issue for Clemson going into the year? We thought it might be hard to replace all of those talented defenders, and instead their defense has been you know, statistically – pretty close to his dominant. I, I don't think it's as good because they were great, but it's really good. It's I, I actually think statistically, I actually think statistically it might be even a little better okay. just because yeah. they had, just because they had that one game early in the season last year against A&M where Mond played out of his mind. And, and that's sort of like, that sort of Jimmy, the statistics for several months before they could get back up. But, you know, but yeah, I mean, they yeah. played, you know, I, again, I was at the 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 A and M game, which is the one game where they sort of you thought you okay, that's an offense that might be able to test them, and, and they've been spectacular on on defense. And, and you're right, I think they're they are rolling along just fine. There is no reason for anybody to worry necessarily about Clemson, but or, I also or, or Alabama. but or Alabama, quite frankly, or Alabama. Though though I also would agree with the idea that. Listen, in my mind, I think Ohio State's just been playing the best football, and it goes back to that word struggle, right? I haven't seen a hint of struggle in Ohio State. They have basically put a sleeper hold on everybody by the by halftime. But I, again, I think it speaks to a larger issue, which is I, I think the dominant teams have become so dominant, and I think that fans of the other teams want to sort of poke holes and 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 who'd you play and all that stuff. So where it's constantly grasping for like little shreds of like, oh, 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 wait, but but Tennessee almost scored on them to make it a one-score game in the fourth quarter. That didn't happen, but it almost happened. That's what I get a lot of these days in, 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 is this, like, well, didn't you watch the game? This almost happened. 
Like, well, right. that's I don't know. Like, what the hell does that mean? <laughs> you know, this almost right. happened, but it, but it did not. Right, right, right. Um, no, that's just uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Look, I also think the thing with Clemson, and I know you originally asked me about Alabama when we started the struggle question, <laughs> but but the other thing with Clemson is because the ACC is clearly down. Right. If they don't whack the floor with people every time, then then there is a tendency coming from other corners of the country or nearby corners of the country <laughs> right. to sort of want to downplay that. And, and obviously, I'm talking about SEC fans here. Uh, and there's no question that they are, they have a a lesser schedule in the conference than what Alabama is playing, for example. Um, no question. Uh, I, I don't disagree. But here's the other thing, too. I've actually heard them compared to the 2014 Florida State team, which was was also a defending national champion from the last BCS uh, championship, and kept. It, but they really did keep skating by and barely escaping, and it was really, you know, is zany and entertaining. And how did they keep winning? We haven't seen that. We did see it against North Carolina, but we have not seen that at all out of this Clemson team. And yet they're being compared to that Florida State team as though as though they are, you know, not dominating a bunch of people along the way, and they are. Yeah, that Florida State team was a very fun team because they kept falling behind by huge margins early in, early in games. They probably did it three or four times where they had to come from multiple touchdowns down to win games against, I, I believe, Louisville and North Carolina State. I remember they had, like, it was like 21 nothing. North Carolina State was leading, and they still ended up winning by, like, multiple touchdowns. <laughs> but it was, it was wild, the ride that that team went on. One thing I wonder is how much of our question about how teams struggle is now we get baked in sometimes um, how a team starts, not a season, but a game, because we are so dialed into sort of, and, and I don't think it's just you and me and other sports journalists. I think fans are like this now. We're so dialed into Twitter and, and social media that, it, that, that how a team performs in the first quarter of the first half, we forget that there's a full game. And I, and I, and George, by that, the end of that the game, is such a great darn point. dominant. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that's true of a season, too, if you take it a little bit bigger. You can have, you can develop as a team through the course of the season. You can go forward or backward. But, you know, sometimes you have a, a bad drive in a game or, or it's seven to six and you're, you're struggling with, I don't know, Kansas or somebody, but you end up winning 49 to 14. And it's not, you know, but, but we're all going, wow, did you see them struggle against, you know, Georgia Tech or whoever it is? And, and sometimes in the course of a season, everybody has that one game. Or one quarter or two. And by the end of the year, you're terrific. You know, it's so interesting, and I'll, I'll wrap it up here, with, uh, this segment here, uh, with this point. I'm glad you brought up the beginning of the game thing. I've literally had conversations with writers in the AP about, hey, uh, football games are 60 minutes. Often we are... I see this written into AP copy game store because I see a lot of game stories because we have people all over the country. You know, so-and-so had a slow start. So-and-so recovered from a slow start, recovered from early struggles. It's like, you know, guys like and gals, there are four quarters here, 60 minutes. Like, you know, a football game, a first quarter, you know, that simply starts off with a kickoff, and you might only have two possessions there. And just because you're not winning 21 nothing in the first quarter, like, let's not get so hung up on, you know, quote-unquote struggles. I've, I've literally had conversations with writers about that to sort of think beyond that. Try not to be so 
influenced by the first thing you see in a game that it, it sort of bleeds into the rest of the copy. And then all of a sudden you're not realizing, oh, but in the third quarter, they put up four, like three touchdowns. Like, so I, I think that is a problem that we all have because I think we're influenced by the first thing we see. And I, and I do, I've literally had that conversation with journalists about try to avoid that when you're writing gamers. I think that we do that. That's a typical problem among sports writers when they're writing gamers yeah. is that they are heavily influenced by what we see first. And that becomes the narrative throughout a story. There's a lot of reasons for that, including especially, this is probably especially true with the AP, but also for those of us who have to fire off bulletins at the end of the game, exactly. um, similar to what AP writers have to do. You, you have to get to work on it at a certain point, and so you don't have a full body of work done yet, right? And so sometimes that sort of, you know, improperly colors your perspective. The other piece of it is I do think that it's been exacerbated by Twitter, yeah. especially among uh, us. And mm-hmm. by us, I mean sports journalists who cover college football, because we're, we're in that kind of echo chamber, and we all sort of fire off zingers about whatever latest struggle, you know, Texas is back or Texas is not back or whatever it is. And in fact, Texas might end up beating K-State by, by 35. But boy, Texas struggled again that day. And it kind of gets baked into our thinking. Uh, and, and it probably shouldn't because we're following things on Twitter. Okay, we're going to take a quick break here on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The USA Today Coaches Salary Database is out. It's a very, it's a great project that Steve Berkowitz mans. He is, he is the wizard when it comes to this stuff. Uh, George is his colleague. We will dive into uh, sort of the numbers and what the coaches are making and who, who, how, holy cow, how much does Jeff Brom make? And we'll, <laughs> and we will come back right after this for more AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. We're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm talking with George Schroeder from USA Today, the great national college football writer and my friend. Uh, So this is like a holiday for your colleague Steve Berkowitz over at USA Today in Mm -hmm. that the College Football Coaches Salary Database publishes today. I know this takes a lot of work. I don't know. You know what? I know he's got some people helping him. I don't know how much you have to deal with this at all, George. I don't want to. I don't want to say that you're shirking if you don't. But I also don't want to say that you you're involved too much because I also know you got a lot on your plate too. Are you? Do you have any uh, hand in this? You know, this predated me um, before I even showed up at, at USA Today, and it's been a Burko um, thing for a long time. So Steve Berkowitz does it. I, I don't. The work he does in compiling all those contracts and then, you know, putting them together and then trying to determine the apples to oranges pieces, because there's a lot of different ways that the compensation reads in different contracts mm-hmm. is, um, is a really hard, it, it's a difficult gig. Now I do think some of it is, you know, you, you get to a certain point and you, I mean, he, he has done the work years and years ago to have all the relationships with the different open records officers at the different schools and to know how you get open records from this school or that school and when you have to do it. So at a certain point, it, it begins to run itself a little bit, but I'm not discounting the amount of work that, that he and a couple others do. I am not involved in that. And so, and, and frankly, I'm okay with it. <laughs> right. It's still a ton of work for him. 
Yeah, and plus, I think because when as as someone who has read a coach's contract or two, like like you have, you realize until you start reading a lot of them, it's sort of hard to crack the codes. But once you start reading more of them, you're like, oh, wait, I, I think I understand what this wording means and why this compensation doesn't show up. Because at this school, it's coming from a different source. It's coming from an outside where at this school, no, it's all it's all spelled out in the contract. So I think, you know, it's it's just repetitions, man. Like you learn the lingo and you learn to crack the codes of these contracts. So. Putting aside the amazing work that Steve Berkowitz does on this, and it is not just great for uh, readers, it is an unbelievably great resource. It is the standard. It is the standard in the industry. If I am citing what a coach makes, if I do not have that contract handy, most likely what I will simply do is go to the list and cite Berko's work and give him credit for it. And we will move on from there. And no athletic directors around the country uh, have a problem with that. Yeah, people understand that this is this is as good as you're going to get when it comes to deciphering what coaches make. So let's put that aside for a second. And I, I won't say like were there surprises on the list. I know your colleague Dan Wolkin sort of came up with the worst contracts on the list, which is you know obviously just Dan's perspective on it. But I think the the one thing that does stand out is this idea that you're sort of paying in some cases for what you think will be accomplished. And I think that might be the theme here that you're seeing more and more. While you're certainly Dabo and Nick Saban at the top are incredibly well accomplished and deserve if there anybody does deserve that kind of money for coaching football in college, I, I guess it would be those two. But there's also, you know, Jim Harbaugh and Jimbo Fisher and Kirby Smart and Tom Herman and Jeff Brom at Purdue making six million a year. And it's a lot of sort of spending on what you hope might happen. Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. I mean, some of them have done it before. Uh, Let me go back. One of them has done it before, Jimbo Fisher. Uh, but at, at Florida State, and so, and I actually think that Texas A&M overpaid for him because Texas A&M. Right, but you're not right. you're not wrong in that uh, in that. Yes, I think this is the guy that can get us there. Let's let's pay them a ton of money. The the Jeff Brom one is the one that's the most interesting to me out of anybody in the top ten uh, because it's Purdue. And the idea that Purdue's football coach um, is the eighth highest paid coach in in, uh, in college football is an amazing thing. Six point six million dollars this year. Now, it, you know, all of these things. There's a story behind it, and obviously, Louisville pursued him. Uh, he stayed at Purdue. Um, there's a giant. Uh, there's a giant bonus that's paid out over a couple of years, which change, which is one reason why his, his salary is so high this year. But still, he's making $6.6 million at Purdue. And, and I don't know how you sort of reconcile that with all these other schools where you can at least say, well, this school either is or thinks it is one of the powers of college football. So it's hard for me to, to come up with the, just to sort of wrap my mind around Jeff Brom, 
right. $6.6 million this year at Purdue. Because because if Jeff Brom were to do a tremendous job at Purdue, if he was to be just really – and listen, they've had injuries this year, and, and they're probably right. – they're going to scrape by to just get to a bowl game. That doesn't mean it's a disaster. I, I still think he is probably a good coach, and I, I think he does sort of raise the ceiling there potentially over the next few years. But you're still talking about a school where – if Jeff Brom just hits it out of the park and he maxes out that program, they probably win the Big Ten West and maybe can upset you know one of the power schools on the other side of the East and get to and win a Big Ten championship. But that is not we're not just wishful thinking; we're just wish casting here. I mean, like no, we it's are a crazy dream, yeah. right? And, and listen, it'd be great if it happened. I think we'd all enjoy it. But by the way, and if that happens, you're probably looking at some two at a two loss champion that goes to the Rose Bowl, which would be fantastic. But oh, we're not sure. talking about playoff contender, which is what we are talking about. All of these other programs think that they're paying their coach to be. The other part of it too that's interesting, and I know uh, Kirby Smart. You know Kirby Kirby after they went to the championship game a couple of years ago, got right. a huge raise. His 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 deal got doubled. And it was only after his second year. And I'll use Kirby as an example, but honestly, I'm not picking on Kirby here. Coaches have a couple of good years, you know, show some potential to be championship winning coaches. And then they get these massive raises, especially, again, at programs that fancy themselves as, first of all, they're flush a program like Georgia or Oklahoma, because Oklahoma did a similar deal, a similar deal with Lincoln Riley. They are flush with money. So, uh, right. you know, they have the cash to do this. But they, it seems like what the MO is throughout college football, even at lower levels, and Brahm is somewhat an example, too, is to rush to push these salaries to massive levels, and also we're going to throw in this massive buyout. So if by the ch- by any chance you happen to fail, <laughs> we're also going to pay for your failure too, right. which is very right. odd as well. Look, there's a little bit of, well, I think there's more than a little bit of, and this is especially true, I think, when you when you and every other athletic director can look at the USA Today Sports database. So I might as well plug our, our database and Steve Berkowitz again. There, there is a whole lot of the fact that the fans know what these coaches are making. So if your coach is making $3.5 million a year and he just took you to the SEC championship game and, and was a heartbeat away from winning the national title, they want to know why he's not getting paid like those other guys because they want to be able to say, our coach is getting paid all that money too. And so there's a little bit, I think, of we have to pay what the other guys pay. Regardless of how we got our coach, what the salary is, why it is that way, there's a lot of sort of um, why, isn't, why isn't Kirby Smart getting paid like those other guys when he just did this? And let's, let's make sure our guy has the same kind of money. Uh, I think that's – yeah, it's you know, a, it's, sure there's, there a prestige, there's a prestige fans. piece of this, right? Because yeah. it just it, like we have a six million dollar coach, so of course he must be good because he makes six million dollars, right? Right. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure there are probably Oklahoma fans today looking at the fact that uh, Lincoln Riley makes, and I look at it here, six point four million dollars a year, and Tom Herman makes six point seven five million dollars a year, and wonders why Joe Castiglione hasn't pulled some, you know, four hundred thousand dollars out of the couch cushions this morning. <laughs> That's how fans are. And I think athletic directors are not immune to thinking that way, too. Usually not when it's like that. But 
But if your guy's making 3.5 and he has some success, then all of a sudden it's, it's like time for the big leap because we have to make it, we have to, it all has to look right. Because it's also kind of an interesting thing. Yeah, because it's also not just the fans on Twitter. It's it's the people at the board meetings, and it's the right. boosters who actually do you know write checks that help pay those salaries. And uh, you know, I've ta- I'm sure you've had these conversations, maybe even with Joe C. Though we'll leave that out of it. <laughs> well, you've had these conversations with ads, and they'll tell you like, yeah, I went to my board or my athletic association and said, you know, I, you know, I, I don't think we should, you know, we might want to be cautious about an extension here. And they'll go, no, 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 no. We we have to pay as much as the other. Like, what's our rival paying? <laughs> so it's amazing how people who are really rich and good at business, when they get put in a college football setting, lose their minds, right? <laughs> and, and suddenly right. All, the, all the wise things that made them rich in the first place, they are rushing to throw money at a coach. Uh, and again, not just for a salary, but for a buyout, because that's really the, the amazing part of it, too, is now you're on the hook for that coach's failure, uh, you're already paying him this large sum of money to be a success, and now when he fails, you're still paying him a huge amount of money to fail because that's the only reason why you're going to fire him. So if, if you have these large buyouts, which will be paid out at his firing, you're also saying, well, now I'm going to give uh, Gus Malzahn $27 million to fail. <laughs> right, like, and I'm, again, I'm not. I'm just picked that randomly at uh, off yeah. the off the screen here. But that's craziness too. The way this system is set up, in the idea that we rush to extend the coaches, rush to give them raises, but then give them the parachute of, oh, by the way, and if you fail, we'll probably give you most of the contract anyway. Like what? Well, what's <laughs> no, it's crazy. And by the way, none of these guys want to fail, and they're already they're always like the uber type A personality, no doubt. super wired to be more competitive than anybody else in the world, right? I mean, you know, they're essentially they're like the CEOs that rise to the very top. They're relentless, and and so none of them wants to do this. But I think a lot of us have stopped sat there and thought to myself, or I know I thought to myself, let's put it this way. If you want to pay me $27 million to go away, I'm going to go buy my own private island, and I'm going to go away. And how much fun would that be? Now, I think I'd probably get bored, and my guess is those guys would go stir-crazy. But it, it does sort of create an incentive to, in some odd way, to say, yeah, I don't really care if we get this done or not. I'm about to make $27 million. That is not obviously the case with, with Gus. Or, or most of these guys, but it's just kind of funny because I think the the average guy that looks at that is going, it wouldn't be such a bad deal to get that kind of money to, to after you failed. No, you're you're right. It, it it is easy to to see a structure there that is in, is incentivizing not necessarily trying your best, right? I mean, we talk at, about at least at the end when it's if if and when it's going bad or whatever, it's not going the way, and you kind of know how it's going, well, maybe I don't have to work quite as hard to recruit because that's going to be the next guy anyway. Or maybe I don't have to work quite as hard on this game plan. Now, I, that, I don't believe that happens. No, and no, it, I, and, I And I am not I speaking any specifically yeah. of anybody, but it does sort of create the potential for that. And I also don't begrudge, honestly, don't begrudge any of the coaches getting this because this is what the market 
allows. Uh, you know, again, right. the money is there. We all we all know the money is there. So, you know, I'm not going to open this Pandora's box or, or maybe I'll just crack it open a bit. If you're not going to pay the athletes, you might as well pay the coaches. Like I said, the money is there and it has to be spent. So, again, I don't begrudge the coaches. It's the fact that this market has become so sort of bastardized in ways where between salaries, buyouts, extensions, and raises, I don't know if markets are supposed to be rational, right? I'm not an economist, but they talk about the rational markets. Like, this doesn't seem like a rational market to me anymore. I think we've, we've, we've left the realm of rational markets when it comes to college football coaches and maybe college coaches in general. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Uh, although USA Today, and, and I don't know if it last year or the year before, uh, did a story on what what Nick Saban has meant to Alabama. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean the University of Alabama, sort of the community of Tuscaloosa, maybe the state of Alabama. And and that's so hard to, to, to quantify because it's – there's but, but I do, don't think that – I do think that what Alabama football has done during sort of that – his run has really raised things for the school. I don't think there's any question that it's, it's really been a good thing. And it goes way beyond the money that they're actually making and raking in from football, which is considerable, right? Just from that, you can pay a guy a ton. But in the case of a Nick Saban, I don't know that we can really calculate what he's meant to the school itself. Prestige in some ways, uh, just money, new students coming from all over. And so I think there's that. Now, a lot of these guys don't fit that profile. Well, that's the thing. Like, right, Dabo and and because I think Dabo's had a similar or is starting to have a similar effect on Clemson. So Dabo and Nick set the bar. Right. Everybody falls in line after them. Harbaugh is making a million more than a million less than Alabama than uh, than Nick Saban. He's making almost you know a million and a half less than. Dabo, but nonetheless, that's where the bar is set. So once it's almost like I've heard this conversation of like you couldn't pay Michael Jordan or LeBron James enough, right? Like just from 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 take the players' perspective, those guys are so good that the salary structure, no matter what you paid them, they would be undervalued. But nonetheless, the best players set the market, and then it's the next tier that ends up sort of becoming a little muddled, right? LeBron, you couldn't right. pay LeBron enough, but do you really need to pay and I I'm not I'm not good enough with basketball to know like a like a second tier superstar, but do you really need to pay like a second tier superstar 30 million dollars because LeBron's making 40. And I think that's what's coming up what's happening here. Right. Like you can sort of justify Dabo's 9 and Nick's 8, but once you hit Jim Harbaugh's 7.5, hard to justify that, but that's the market. They are below the, mar- the the top of the market, but those two guys have set the market. You have to, and the other piece of this, too, is we're just looking at raw numbers. Each There's reasons why each one of these guys got that money. I mean, we mentioned Jeff Brom. I think they overpaid to keep him from going to Louisville. Uh, but Jim Harbaugh, let's keep in mind when they hired him, Oh sure. There was there was all this question as to whether or not, and Dan Wolken mentioned this uh, in in the column that you mentioned about his, his opinion on sort of I think he said the seven worst contracts. But when when Harbaugh was hired away from the NFL, there were all sorts of people that said he's not leaving the NFL. And so I think Michigan put together a crazy big package because they wanted you, you had to go big or there was no chance you were even going to get 
a Michigan, this Michigan man to come home. I think that was a big piece of that. And, you know, we're talking about a, a Super Bowl coach. So that's, that's what they were getting, right? To a certain extent. So, I mean, there's, there's an individual story to each one of sure. these. It doesn't make them all, all – it doesn't make any of them make sense, but, but at least you have a better feel for it. I'll, I'll leave it at this uh, on my end. To a certain extent, it's not the Harbaugh, Jimbo, Kirby Smart contracts that are the most outrageous because, as we said, those schools are right. flush. In some ways, it's the – it's the schools, a few, maybe sort of the group of five schools that are now stepping up and trying to pay three, four million dollar salaries, even two or, you know, at some schools, th- those schools where it's a little bit of a stretch, but they feel compelled to keep a coach that's had success or and Dana Holgerson is one of the guys that that Dan um, mentioned here. And I think it's a good point. Like. Houston paid Dana almost three, four million a year. I think he's three point seven this year. But really, what is Houston going to get from this? And this is why we sort of mentioned with Purdue, like, like what are you paying for Purdue? Are you're paying for sort of Big Ten second tier relevance? Well, Houston, you're not making the playoff. You know, like what exactly are you paying $4 million for if you're Houston and some of these programs? And by the way, some of those programs are when they pay these exorbitant salaries because $2 million could be exorbitant for some schools. Now they're now they are stretching. Now they are putting themselves in a bind. And where is that money coming from? Because a lot of schools are now trying to compete with the big boys in a way that is sort of stretching themselves, that is stretching the budget and putting the rest of the athletic department maybe in the red. Well, uh, listen, you mentioned that, and you mentioned Dana Holgerson, who's making what, 3.7, whatever it is. But here's one that sticks out to me. The last guy who's over $5 million on this list this year is the 16th highest paid coach in the country, according mm-hmm. to, to our database, yep. USA Today database, is Charlie Strong at South Florida. And never mind what the fact that South Florida is struggling, right? All right. Let's say everything's going great and they're one of the top tier American teams. How in the world are you paying Charlie Strong $5 million in South Florida? He, he was fired at Texas. You didn't have to pay that. You don't have to pay the same kind of money he was making at Texas to get it. Maybe, maybe I need to go deep into that story, too. But that one sticks out to me like South Florida, USF, is going to pay any coach $5 million? What is going on here? Let's leave it at that. The last word, not necessarily on this subject, but on this podcast with you, George, because I want to let you get out of here. I know you got more important things to do than talk with me today. So we talked about Jim Harbaugh. He's got a game this weekend against Notre Dame. I want to ask you this. If Jim Harbaugh beats Notre Dame, is it a big game? <laughs> Does it qualify as a big game if he beats Notre Dame? Because we, we bash Harbaugh all the time for not winning big games. So I'm wondering if he beats Notre Dame, is it a big game? But if he loses to Notre Dame, does that make it a big game? Well, of course, if he loses, it's a big game. <laughs> right. Because right. That's, that's how this narrative goes, right? He hasn't won a single big game since he got to, to Michigan, is, is what we say. And it's sort of hard to disagree with that. Uh, Michigan State apparently only qualifies as big when they actually lose it. But, yeah, no, it's a big game if he wins it. Because if we're, look where Notre Dame is right now in, in everybody's rankings. Mm-hmm. And Notre Dame, I don't think, has a real shot at the playoff without a whole lot of chaos. 
but it's clearly one of the better teams in the country. It's definitely one of the top 10 teams in the country, at least midway through the season, it feels that way to me, or that'd be my assessment. So if they win that game, it's a really big game. Um, and, and I think it ought to be treated as such. And then everybody's still going to go, okay, but can you win the other big game? And, and by that, I mean the big game. Yeah, listen, I mean, it's all about whether he beats Ohio State. I completely understand that. But, uh, you know, as someone who has probably defended Harbaugh, but my defense has been a little more tepid uh, as of in the last, let's say, 12 months, I have found it just very odd that he has been backed into a position where only his losses really count. Right, like, like, like he can almost do no right, and just like you said, like you beat Michigan State, but who cares? Um, you beat Penn State a bunch of times, actually, but who cares? It only counts right. when it only sort of counts when we say it counts. So this game in particular, I find to be rather intriguing because I actually think Michigan's going to beat Notre Dame, and I, I will be interested to hear what the narrative is coming out of it if if they do, and because I certainly know what it's going to be if they don't. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with you. And um, the, the whole narrative on Harbaugh is interesting because, on the one hand, they have not met the expectations that were just sky high. On the other hand, they were an, they were almost literally an inch away yeah. from essentially being in the playoff. Obviously, they would have had to play in a Big Ten championship game, but being in the playoff, what was it, 2016? Yep. And yeah. and and you know, depends on the spot which Jim Harbaugh would probably like to remind you, was incorrect in his mind, um, in Columbus. Yeah. And they're going to beat the Buckeyes. And then the spot on fourth down is, is not what he wants it to be. They were that close to beating the Buckeyes and probably, I would say, being in the playoff. At which point, if that happens and everything else happens exactly the same, are we, thinking, are we talking the same way? Because I, I think not. they clearly slid back a little bit from that point they're not the same they don't have as powerful a team uh these last couple of years as they had that that year they're not as good and the offense hasn't been what they hoped it would be when they were going to revamp it and open it up this year I, I get all that but if all of this happens exactly the same since that point is the narrative the same for jim harbaugh right now completely different one inch completely different. one inch yep yeah uh, it's a strange sport we cover. George Schroeder from USA Today, the great national college football writer and my friend. Hey, man, hopefully we will cross paths in a press box real, real soon. Thank you so much for doing this today. Hey, thanks for having me, man. I really enjoyed it. And now three and out. First down. Okay, my take on coaches grabbing face masks because that's been a thing this past weekend. I really don't get too fired up about coaches losing it on the sidelines, no matter the sport. Uh, I didn't think Jeremy Pruitt tugging his quarterback's face mask was an outrage. To me, it was sort of no big deal, though I will echo my pal Andy Staples' sentiment. Yank an adult football player by the face mask at your own risk, coaches. Mostly, I think it's bad coaching. Uh, in the way when I really lose my temper and start cursing and screaming at my kid, it's bad parenting. Anytime your anger gets in the way of your message, I think you're wasting your time and energy. And I think those rules generally apply to both college coaches and parents. Plus, it kind of looks unprofessional and probably doesn't play very well in recruiting. So generally speaking, keep your hands off the face mask. Second down. When I first reported that the NCAA was considering switching college overtime to a two-point shootout after four rounds, 
many fans hated the idea, mostly because people hate change. I loved the idea from the start, and even though I didn't get a chance to see it play out in the Virginia Tech-UNC game, because I didn't have that game on TV, it seems like those who did thought it was pretty cool. See, I told you it would be fun. Third down. Off the radar this week, keep an eye on the MAC. The whole thing. The conference is a jumble as league play has started with perennial powers, Toledo and Northern Illinois struggling in the West, and perennial cellar dweller, Kent State, currently tied for first in the East. It's almost hard to determine what is a big game in the conference, but Ball State has won three straight to start MAC play, and the Cardinals face Ohio the preseason Mac favorite on Saturday. The Bobcats have already lost a conference game. Another could put them in an early bind. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcasts and just about anywhere you find your podcast. Please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast was presented by Regions Bank.